Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Phil Walter, and we are discussing his new post, Afghanistan, Two Neglected Discussions. So why, why are we having this conversation? Um, right now, there's Korea going on. There's you know all sorts of foreign policy issues that are going on. Why discuss Afghanistan? So the reason I wanted to do a, a series on Afghanistan, discussing it on multiple levels, is that a couple months ago, a few months ago, the Trump administration escalated us, the U- U.S., into Afghanistan again, very much reflective of the Obama administration um, sort of move in 2009. The difference here, in my view, is there was no debate, right? So on NPR, on you know all the, the public sort of news networks, no debate. There's no debate on CNN. There's no debate on on Fox News. And when I say debate, I mean taking a look at the policy and the strategy of why we are in Afghanistan after 20-odd years. So, and th- there's this other issue where that when it comes down to a policy analysis, that it becomes partisan, that people oppose us going in Afghanistan not because of some deep sort of strategic analysis rather it's it's a reflection on oh the trump administration is doing it so we oppose it and so i wanted to get beyond that and i wanted to sort of um have someone on the show that could give us a framework to think about and to guide us through their arguments in this framework and have a actual substantive discussion um so phil has written uh we'll have the link up and it's it's not partisan, it's nonpartisan, and it's just, here's the situation we're in, and then here's the framework, here's the discussion, um, which is a great way of sort of doing stuff. So um, please welcome Phil Walter for me. Um, Good evening, Sina. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's nice to be back on the Loopcast. Oh, of course. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a little about um, our guests. So when we... When we publish the Loopcast, we're going to have a link to the, the blog post, and then we're going to have a link to Divergent Options, um, which is um, Phil's project um, that's it's basically it's an ongoing policy discussion with different approaches to policy. So please check that out. So I want to maybe start off the, at the top of the show with why did you write this post? What, what was your motivation? Because it seems like that you're like one of maybe a handful of people that's discussing this issue. And then you seem to be the only one who's discussing this issue publicly. So, I mean, give us a reason why, what was your motivation for the article? So uh, before I do that, I'll just have an admin announcement for the listeners is that I'm battling a cold right now. So if I start coughing uncontrollably, I will uh, get it under control as quick as I can and try to sound uh, logical instead of coughing. But the uh, so I, I wrote the article because um, 
as I kind of look at the world right now, I see a United States that since the 9-11 attacks has been primarily focused on managing violent extremism and uh, primarily really focused on Afghanistan initially and then Iraq and then the primary focus even shifted to Iraq and Afghanistan was neglected for a while and then we left Iraq and Afghanistan is still going and now we're back in Iraq. And so um, as I as I look at the U.S.'s primary focus, I, th- I think that during the years since 9-11, um, Russia and uh, the People's Republic of China have really taken advantage of the U.S. Um, being primarily focused on Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, while the U.S. has had this focus um, in that in the Middle East region and in kind of Southwest Asian region, uh, Russia and the PRC have um, been able to build or rebuild or enhance their you know military capabilities. Um, the uh, Russians have really uh, gotten good at you know, what is hybrid warfare or whatever you would like to call it. There are a million different names for it. And they are kind of uh, reestablishing their presence in Ukraine and elsewhere and Syria as well. And, you know, China has been has been establishing these man-made islands and militarizing them and, and really focusing on the develop of anti-access and area denial technology to ensure that the U.S. cannot, you know, drive through the Taiwan Straits anytime they want, like they did during the Taiwan Strait crisis in the mid to late 90s. And all of this Russia and China activity has happened while the U.S. has been occupied elsewhere. So as I look at, at, at the world right now, I, I see a U.S. that I feel like is kind of behind the power curve, so to speak, at least uh, military capabilities-wise. And um, though many people call kind of Afghanistan, you know, the phrase, the, the graveyard of empires, um, rings a bell. And while I, I think that's a, a good kind of catchphrase, I think the reality of the scenario is, is that um, the empire has to dig its own grave, in Afghanistan, um, Afghanistan in and of itself is not a graveyard of empires, but if, uh, if, if, if a country chooses to go there and behave a certain way, it can most definitely, uh, dig its own grave. So a lot of the Afghanistan debate, especially, you know, over the years it's, it's gone up and gone down, but since president Trump has, has taken office, it's, it's interesting because the debate still seems very binary. And what I mean by that is it seems it's always, well, we either need to go all in, the U.S. needs to go all in, or the U.S. needs to leave. And there's not a lot of talk of a middle ground between those extremes. And when there, and then even beyond that, there's not a lot of talk of what is the manpower mix um, of the force that would be in between the extremes um, if there was a mi- mi- middle ground in there somewhere. So um, I really wanted to examine that. I, I had hoped to uh, spur some conversations. I don't know if I did. <laughs> Maybe I did. And um, I, 
I really wanted to get people to think, especially in the light of um, Eric Eric Prince, who is the founder of Blackwater, who came out with a huge proposal to basically privatize the entire um, effort in Afghanistan, which, in my opinion, though I think that's a, a, a neat thing to talk about and look at, I think Eric Prince's proposal was kind of dead on arrival, uh, simply because it, you know, overall outsourcing um, government functions wholly kind of runs counter to you know U- U.S. values, and then you know the historical press from private military contractors, um, you know, still grates some people the wrong way. Even though there are a lot of contractors who have served very honorably, and I count a great many of them among my close friends, um, the reality of it is is that, that the U.S. kind of only remembers tragedy. And uh, some of that is associated with Eric Prince and Blackwater just because of things that happened with, with him when he ran that organization. And so uh, while I thought his proposal was interesting, I wanted to kind of drill down a little bit more within the, um, within the extremes of all in or all out. I wanted to, to drill down into what is the right mix. But I also really wanted to get into what is the – you know, what is the U.S. core interests in Afghanistan and, you know, what are their intensity? And then look at, you know, is there any opportunity costs um, for the U.S. in continuing to, A, have a footprint in Afghanistan and, B, have the majority of that footprint or a large portion of that footprint be members of the U.S. Armed Forces? Because there's a lot of things in U.S. law and federal acquisition regulations that govern what contractors can and cannot do. Um, There are a lot of things that only U.S. government employees or members of the armed forces can do. And so I had hoped to kind of start with a framework and then work through that and then hopefully illuminate um, the idea of, hey, we, you know, Let's look at this mix of forces that is going to remain and figure out what the best mix is because it does no good, in my opinion, to use a military member or a civil service employee to do things that a contractor can do in, in, in general. And, you know, all of that just kind of goes back to a um, 101 level um, Marine Corps leadership principle that I was taught when I was a you know corporal in 1998, which is employ your unit in accordance with its capabilities. Well, contractor capabilities are based upon what's in U.S. law and federal acquisition regulations, and and we should employ them in accordance with their capabilities so that we can take our U.S. military members and our civil servants and employ them in other places because they have greater capabilities than a contractor does. Um, so that was that was kind of why I wrote it. While I was researching it, um, it was that there were I, I enjoyed researching it. There was a specific part of it where I quoted um, both President Obama in August of two thousand and nine, and then um, President Donald Trump almost eight years later, where their quotes on Afghanistan are almost exactly the same. Um, I found myself I did. I don't know how I would describe it. I don't know if it was laughing or crying or both um, because President Trump ran so much on a, uh, on an idea of, uh, you know, I am not, I'm not Obama. I'm going to fix everything. And then here he is barring pretty much the exact same talking points um, when trying to sell 
the United States people on uh, on Afghanistan, which I thought was, you know, I don't know, I don't know whether it means we've tried everything. The U.S. has tried everything in Af- in Afghanistan, and this is what remains. I don't know whether it means that the Trump administration is just you know going on with the same old thing because that's all all that the you know long-term government employees know how to do i really don't know but that was uh that was truly interesting as as i went along during the research so i want to maybe um parse this down and start with um defining the u.s core interests in afghanistan as you see it and okay and, and and sort of you know you know, and where are we placing Afghanistan in sort of our broader NATSEC strategy and the broader U.S. national security strategy? Okay. So, so the first thing is that for the purposes of the article, I used, um, I used a, a, a 2008 article written by a gentleman named Alan G. Stolberg. He wrote this amazing article called Crafting National Interests in the 21st Century. And any of the uh, listeners who read my article, which I host on my personal website, um, you can, there's a hyperlink and you can download Mr. Stolberg's article from my website. And that was really the basis of my entire, um, I, all of my ideas were hinged on, uh, Mr. Stolberg's article. So, you know, he talks about, you know, a useful definition of U S core interests are, you know, security, economic well-being democratic values, and a stable and secure world order. Um, those are kind of the core um, national interests. So as I, as I was writing the article, I had to tie um, Afghanistan to one of these core interests. So the easiest one to tie um, U.S. interest to is security. So Stolberg talks about that as protection of the people, both home and abroad, territory and institutions of the United States against potential foreign um, dangers. So what was interesting is um, as I wrote the article and I tied it to the initial U.S. core interests in Afghanistan to security, um, it, it, it was very interesting because I had to avoid getting sidetracked. Um, this article could have gotten sidetracked very, very easily. And what I mean by that is, is the U.S. Um, interest of security in Afghanistan is really based on um, kind of the idea that if the U.S. departs and the Afghan government falls to the Taliban, then Afghanistan will once again become a safe haven for violent extremism and the violent extremist organizations who go to Afghanistan seeking safe haven, will um, plan, train, and launch attacks against the U.S. So, you know, for the, for, for the purposes of the article, I, I had to actually write assumptions into it, which was very hard because I'm not a huge believer personally in the safe haven idea. Um, I, I believe that safe havens exist, but I honestly believe that safe havens can almost exist anywhere. And especially in kind of the um, internet age, I can establish a virtual safe haven. Um, I can get people together almost anywhere in the world. So um, it was it was interesting first to see you know both 
President Obama and President Trump talked about safe havens um, and a resurgence of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan if we left. So um, it's it, so for the purposes of the article, I assumed the safe haven thing was true, and under that assumption and under Stolberg's core interests, it is clear that um, the the U.S. core interest in Afghanistan is you know, preserving the government of Afghanistan so that it, it, the government of, of Afghanistan can control its own territory and therefore ensure that violent extremists can't establish safe havens there and, and from those safe havens figure out ways to attack the United States. Interesting. So I want to maybe discuss like when we, when we talk about this core interests and sort of the prevention of safe havens, how does that reflect into the organizational and operational demands? So, you know, by implication, you're saying that, that, you know, the strategy in Afghanistan, you know, the prevention of safe havens, however defined, would involve sort of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, some sort of approach. So when we talk about the core interests as you've laid it out, how is that reflected into organization and operations? Well, so so I think that you know the the most important thing is, and, I, and I'm not going to tie anything I say to counterinsurgency or counterterrorism or foreign internal defense or security force assistance or, or any of those terms. Um, I'm going to really hang on what um, J. C. Wiley spoke to in his great book, Military Strategy, where he talks about control. Okay, so really what we want is, you know, the U.S. needs to ensure that the Afghanistan government has the appropriate, has the capabilities it needs to maintain control of its own territory. And whether that means teaching, training, providing equipment, showing people how to conduct planning, um, how to raise a military force, how to train it appropriately, um, all types of things under that rubric of control. Does that help? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so when we, when we discuss this sort of control or this sort of developing control and, and sort of having the writ of the Afghan government sort of expand to everywhere in Afghanistan, I mean, what are we – what are we di- talking about in terms of skill set, in terms of a force? What is, you know, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, it, it seems like that there's a huge commitment in, in sort of developing this control, but then also it's a very specific type of commitment that might not, you know, necessarily be applied to other national security problems. Yeah, so... What's interesting, so from my point of view, if I want to help a partner have the skills they need to establish control of their own territory, you know, that's generally going to be um, provision of training, um, provision of advice, and provision of equipment, right? Um, but if I take a U.S. military force that um, – traditionally was built for engaging a near-peer competitor in a fight, meaning a uh, Russia-China-type scenario, 
And now I am turning them into an organization where instead of doing a very, very complicated job of <laughs> waging large-scale um, warfare on land, air, sea, and space against a very sophisticated enemy, now I have deployed them overseas to a location where they are teaching, training, advising, and providing equipment and maintaining equipment. Um, the big question is, is you know, well, how much of their big major regional contingency near peer fighting skill atrophies when they are turned into essentially a force of teachers and trainers and equipment providers? And then what is the impact of that change? So when we when when you say teachers and trainers, um, so I this is going to sound like a joke, but it's also very serious. I read a lot of uh, cigar press releases um, and their papers. So uh, for those uh, in the audience, it's uh, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, and I forget what the R is. Um, so it's basically a watchdog on how money is spent in, in pursuing the mission in Afghanistan. But um, my, my question to you is, is this a very specific type of training? Because I read through it, and it's it's not training on high-tech platforms, and as we'll see later in the show when we discuss Russia, that training is very much part of that mission. But um, it's not you know training on high-tech platforms, on high-frequency communications. It's not training on uh, tanks or artillery. It seems to be training... You know, very basic stuff like policing or, you know, how not to show up zonked out on heroin to work. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to make light of that, but that's that was actually one of the there's there's it's in one of those reports. Um, but my question is, I mean, at, at its core, can you transfer this teaching and training when it's so basic and so low tech? Can you transfer it to partner nations in Eastern Europe to Latvia to um, Ukraine or to partner nations in East Asia um, to South Korea to Japan um, to Vietnam Thailand whoever I mean is this is it is the mission of training and being teaching so specific to Afghanistan that it's not easily transferable or you can't transition it to other theaters um, I'm not sure, to be honest. The um, I think that, that the, any of the training the U.S. provides is based upon the threat that our partners face and and then also based, based upon what type of the provision of what type of um, training the U.S. wants to provide. So I think in the Afghanistan context, um, likely a lot of the training that's being being provided is based upon the threat posed by the Taliban, which I don't necessarily know if the Taliban is deploying a um, brigade of tanks um, in the offense against, um, against Afghan forces. Um, let's, let's, let's hope that does not ever happen. Uh, so I think that the kind of small arms training and the other things that I understand are, are going on over there um, likely may be su sufficient for the threat that is faced. Um, it's an interesting idea from the standpoint of, you know, I think humans in general kind of go with what we know. And um, from a U.S. military's point of view, I'm always curious to know if 
the initial stand-up and training of the Afghan forces was really focused on the idea of battling the Taliban um, in a, uh, you know, exerting control kind of one village at a time, one one district at a time, one uh, one area at a time, or whether or not it was based upon the idea of, you know, you need to have a large conventional force built like a large U.S. conventional force in order to repel the eventual you know, threat that Pakistan's going to pose from a conventional standpoint. Um, because I think sometimes from a U.S. point of view, we tend to project um, ourselves and our value system onto others when the context is not appropriate. Interesting. So I want to draw a circle around Afghanistan and then move us to Russia and to China. And I want to ask a sort of a broad question before we sort of dig into um, the issues of Russia and China. Um, where are we placing Afghanistan in a broader NATSEC strategy? And what I mean by that is, um, you know, when we view the United States as the sort of the underwriter of international security, what has been the cost, the benefit of including Afghanistan into the national security strategy? And then how do we sort of calculate costs versus, you know, versus near peers like China and like Russia, like Iran even. Um, what has been, what is the costs there, if any? So, so um, Mr. Stolberg's article after it establishes the, uh, you know, the various core interests, it then goes on to establish a framework for uh, prioritizing um, interests based upon their intensity. And he offers uh, four different um, ways to prioritize, and those are called survival, and then vital, and then important, and then peripheral, and that's high to low, respectively. Um, so when I looked at um, Afghanistan, based upon the assumptions that um, if if uh, it, the Afghan government fell and then the Taliban took over that a safe haven would happen and then the U.S. would be threatened. Um, I assessed, just based on the article's framework, that that would be a um, U.S. core intense interest of security and it would be at an intensity level of vital. And kind of Stolberg describes vital as a vital interest exists where an issue is so important to an actor's well-being that its leadership can only compromise um, up to a certain point. Beyond that point, compromise is no longer possible because the potential harm to the actor would no longer be tolerable. So I looked at it from a security and vital point of view, but that is just Afghanistan. That's just one part of a broader kind of U.S. role in the world. So, um, you know, one of the friction points from the U.S.'s point of view is that while the U.S. must take care of itself, meaning um, – help the Afghan government exert control in Afghanistan in order to deal with safe havens. You know, the, the U S is still kind of has this post world war II role as kind of an underwriter of international security. Um, so, but at the same time, the U S armed forces, you know, they're not, they, they're not everywhere and their resources are not unlimited. So if you back away from Afghanistan and look at other, countries like um, Russia and China and the South China Sea, and you apply the Stolberg 
core interests and intensity model to that, you see things that are significantly um, different in Afghanistan. So I want to maybe um, pick apart the idea. I did not pick apart, but I asked, I posed this question to David Kilcullen, which was, um, if I can remember it correctly, which was on one timeline, you have U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, in Iraq. You have the use of counterinsurgency, the use of counterterrorism, this idea that, as you pose in the article, which is the prevention of safe havens, um, on that's one timeline. On two other timelines, the first one on Russia is you very specifically see the rise of a revisionist Russia. And then on the other timeline, you have, as, as you pointed out already, sort of China being more aggressive in the South China Sea. So... And my question, my question is, is that, you know, has the sort of pursuit of safe havens in Afghanistan and the desire to control, to help to build partners to be able to control Afghanistan? I mean, has that sort of degraded our ability to counter a near peer? That's the first question. And then the sub part of that question is, do the near peers know that in the sense of you have very sort of public, you know, shipping accidents in, you know, the, the Navy. And then in Russia, in Russia and Eastern Europe, you have very public sort of, in, in, you know, sort of the failure of preventing Russia from being, from expanding into Ukraine, into challenging Latvia, Poland, and, and parts of you know, Germany. So, I mean, my question is, you know, have we has our capability to counter a near peer been degraded because of the last twenty years of you know trying to not have safe havens in Afghanistan? <laughs> yeah. So, so the answer to your first question, um, I believe yes. I believe the U.S. near peer capability has been degraded due to a, a focus on Afghanistan. Um, the thing that that many people don't take into account, um, you know that. Uh, um, a lot of kind of in the blogosphere world will hand wave the idea of like, uh, there's only 15,000 troops or 10,000 troops on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, and compared to the size of our U.S. military, that's really, really small and it's really an economy of force and it's not a lot. But but they don't understand the reality. Right. So the reality is that, you know, and for the purposes of my article, I, I examined the idea of 15,000 troops on the ground in Afghanistan. So if you have 15,000 people on the ground in Afghanistan. That means you have 15,000 on the ground in Afghanistan. You have 15,000 who have returned from deployment and are like on leave. And you've got about 15,000, some sort of, you know, training up phase for Afghanistan. Um, and that's just the people on the ground, right? So that's 45,000 people. So when you look beyond the 45,000 people, you have pre-deployment training, training organizations, training centers, that support those workups before Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan deployment. So, you know, how much money have the U.S. military's ground forces spent since 9-11 taking their near-peer kind of big open desert tank-on-tank -tank facilities and then changing them to have small villages throughout, changing them for more of a counterinsurgency-type train-up? And then over the course of that, you know, have the 
have the trainers lost their ability to train people in near peer? Um, also beyond kind of the training hitch, there's, there's also issues because a lot of people, especially people who go to headquarters elements, when they deploy, they go out under this thing called individual augmentee status where they may have a job in the States working on a staff and they're going to deploy to Afghanistan and work on a staff and that they have a, they leave a vacancy in the United States when they go deploy. And so now you've got staffs and other organizations um, in the United States, you know, operating at a uh, degraded framework of some kind because their people are forward in Afghanistan. Um, one of the things that, that, you know, you mentioned the collisions of recent U.S. Navy ships, and I kind of spoke to that in the article because, you know, one thing that was interesting while I was doing my research is I came across articles of U.S. Navy officers being used to fill um, uh, provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan, or PRTs as they were called. And so I think it's really interesting to see, you know, I don't know if anybody will ever do the research, but it'd be interesting to basically take every, you know, member of a service, and I won't even say just the Navy specifically, but take every non-land warfare-based person who kind of served in Afghanistan and track where have they gone since then um, and how much um, fighter pilot skills did they lose or ship driving skills did they lose or pick a non-ground warfare skill. And I wonder if they had that atrophy in some way um, in Afghanistan. So, I think that oh, that I think that at the at the kind of big fight level, um, the big near peer competitor major regional contingency type of fight, there has been um, some atrophy. But I will say this: you know, the one good thing that's happened is um, at the tactical level, at the at the small unit level, the amount of gear and equipment and the quality of it since nine eleven has absolutely gone through the roof. Um, I remember when I was a young Marine reservist and then later a young active duty Marine officer, you know, our first aid kits were, you know, worthless. I mean, they, they were really, they weren't really, they were more of a boo-boo kit than a first aid kit. They had band-aids and, you know, you went through all these classes about putting on tourniquets and, you know, using a stick to tighten them and all this stuff. And, um, and then war happens and it's like, oh yeah, none of that works, <laughs> you know? So now the, uh, you know, at the, at the tactical level, at the small unit tactical level, the U.S. military equipment-wise and tactics-wise is very, very good. They've got, you know, the, probably the, the most lightweight body armor they've ever had. It's still heavy and it sucks, but it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, they've got good radios, good night vision, good rifles. I mean, at the, at the tactical l- small unit level, um, amazing things have happened since 9-11. But... I wonder if the um, if the U.S. military had to fight at the division or core um, level or above, um, how much rust would have to be knocked off a lot of things to figure that in. And it's frankly, it's uh, one of those things that kind of keeps me up at night, so to speak. It's, I mean, I want I don't want to maybe sort of push a point forward. It seems like you know when we talk about adversaries the Taliban versus, you know, the Russian military versus the Chinese military. It seems like that when you talk about taking off the rust at the division level, I mean, it, it really seems what, what we're sort of circling around 
is there's going to be a lot of costs, transitional costs, um, costs in in you know money and, and relationships with uh, you know in Eastern Europe and, and East Asia. So I, I'm I'm sort of curious then. I mean. When we talk about knocking off the rust, to, to use your phrase, I mean, what are we talking about? Is it, is it so, you know, pardon my ignorance, I mean, is it so different going from the mission in Afghanistan to a mission in countering, you know, Russia and Eastern Europe to countering China in East Asia? I mean, are these missions so different that you might have to be, you might have to have three different types of forces even? So um, on that note, there is a great um, TED Talk by um, Thomas P.M. Barnett, um, who does a great thing where he talks about the uh, Department of War. Here, uh, let's rethink America's military strategy. It's a great TED Talk. It's truly depressing because I think he did it in 2007. And uh, he talked about exactly what you just spoke of. He said, you know, in his opinion, there should be a what he called a department of war and a department of everything else. And he, in his presentation on the TED Talk, organizes the existing Department of Defense into the Department of War and the Department of Everything Else. And so the D- Department of War consists of um, a majority of the Navy, the majority of the Air Force, the majority of the Army, and the Department of Everything Else is all U.S. Special Operations Forces, the entire United States Marine Corps, all of the special operations aviation, all of the U.S. Navy ships that that are in the amphibious area that support the Marine Corps, and I believe the United States Agency for International Development. And, you know, he said he wanted his Department of War very young, very aggressive, um, and he wanted his Department of Everything Else to be older people who, you know, except for the Marines who would be kind of the – in extremist force that would be required. Um, and so he talked about that exactly. And, and I, I personally believe based upon my experiences that you can't, you know, take somebody who, and train them basically to kill people and then deploy them to be a school teacher. Um, and I can't just ramp up people from school teacher to killing the enemy, then back to teacher, then killing the enemy, then back to, to school teacher. There are, there are organizations in the U.S. military that, that select for that, um, but the majority of them are within special operations forces. They are not within a conventional force construct. Interesting. So, I mean, for, for my last question, I want to sort of circle back to the beginning of the show in the sense of why is it so difficult to have this discussion in the sense of, when we started researching this show, it's I couldn't, for the life of me, find a good public discussion about the costs, the benefits of being in Afghanistan, of you know, of being having a force in Afghanistan for whatever mission. And it, it, it to be honest, I was I was struggling with it because I started we started looking at Trump. You know, it, was there a debate around Trump? Not really. And then we went back to Obama, the, the speech you mentioned in 2009. There wasn't a really good policy debate. There was, there was partisan debate, 
but there wasn't somebody sitting here like like what you've done and make assumptions, dig down, and then do a comparison. So my question to you is, why is this so hard to have this debate in public, it, you know, in the public discourse, in the sort of on Twitter, on coffee shops, wherever? So, so I think the first thing is I don't think it's difficult to have it. I just think the majority of the public don't care. Um, they just they have other things going on in their life. I mean, the 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 fact is that you know I think it's you know less than one percent of the entire U.S. population serves in the military, and then with you know so so based upon that, I mean, I think people in general worry about what affects them, right? So. I'm a big kind of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs guy and uh, psychology 101 uh, type guy. So as I look at, you know, why is it hard to have a conversation? I don't think it's hard to have a conversation at all. I just think that the majority of the American public have other things going on and the Afghanistan debate really doesn't affect them. Um, so they, 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 they're just not, not interested in it in general. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, I I don't remember at the time the um, President Obama surge debate stuff um, and what form it took after the fact. Um, years later, I read um, Bob Woodward's book, uh, uh, I think it was Obama's Wars, and they talk about, they go in depth in, in the um, Afghanistan surge debate, and I thought it was a really interesting um uh, really interesting book, and it was neat the kind of role that Vice President Biden played where every time the military said we need more people, he basically pushed back and said you know, something to the effect of the Taliban did not attack us on 9-11. We're only worried about al-Qaeda, um, which I thought I, th I think is still you know, missed by the majority of, of folks. Um, uh, so I, I also think, too, you know, generally there's this United States thing in our national character. And I think that, that the thing I'm about to describe is, um, hyper on like hyper version of it in the U S military, which is the idea of like, you know, we don't quit, uh, we don't lose. Um, but unfortunately I think it's kind of a, it's kind of turned into Afghanistan in general has turned into this, you know, um, winners never quit and quitters never win. But if you don't quit and you don't win, you might be in Afghanistan. It's kind of the the uh, unfortunate phrase that I use a lot. Um, so, it, it's, yeah, I know it's kind of laughably sad, isn't it? So, um, so I think I think there's a lot of that too. I, I I think it goes back to kind of that George Bush era kind of cut and run thing. You know, we don't we don't cut and run. Um, and and now that's kind of tactically right. I think. I think at a higher level, there is the concern that if the, you know, if the U.S. departs Afghanistan, there is this idea of, um, well, if we abandon that partner, who else are we going to abandon, right? Um, and there's a lot of other countries um, involved in kind of what the goals were set um, initially in, in Afghanistan. So, so when I when I look at it. Um, I kind of feel like, and to you know, borrow a phrase from there's a uh, fitness writer named Dan John who I really enjoy his books, and he has this phrase that I may stutter a bit when I say this because I stutter on my M's. He calls it majoring in the minors, 
And I feel like sometimes Afghanistan and the U.S. Um, a military majoring in the minors. And um, I'm not quite sure where this is going to go. And um, at the end of the day, to to master a skill, right, from the from a U.S. military standpoint, to master a skill, you have to be able to apply that skill on demand regardless of the environmental stimulus. So if the U.S. military wants to be good at fighting near-peer competitors like Russia or China, you that's a really complicated thing. And to master those skills, it's, that is a full-time job. And every time you take a U.S. military member and send them to Afghanistan, um, the near-peer uh, skills atrophy. Every single time, atrophy occurs. Um, and so, you know, the question I, I always keep keep posing is, you know, what are the ramifications of this atrophy? Um, the near-peer competitors are watching. They know the atrophy is occurring. Um, and so then it comes down to, if the U.S. must remain in Afghanistan, then what is the mix of forces that should be there? Um, in my mind, the vast majority of functions over there um, should probably be contracted out in one way or the other if um, they can be done so according to existing law and federal acquisition regulations. And then the military footprint and the government civil service footprint in Afghanistan should only be people who are either A, there because they bring a capability that contractors can't bring, or B, because it is a symbolic gesture to we're giving this military person or this civil servant to the operation. Um, and, and, you know, a force footprint I think is going to be there for a long time. As I look throughout the world at all the conflicts the U.S. has engaged in, I don't see the United States military coming home a lot. Um, I don't see us, the U.S. military coming home a lot from World War II. Uh, the U.S. military is still in Korea. The U.S. military is not in Vietnam, but who knows how that's going to turn out in the future. Uh, so I think the the question of uh, if you, Afghanistan is going to continue, then the right mix debate has to occur. And what I mean by that is that you know the right mix of forces to achieve the to enable the Afghan government to achieve that control that they need. And I don't I'm not confident that the right mix debate um, is happening because honestly the right the right mix debate. Um, would be a laborious task. It would be probably six to nine months of effort to draw out every single person in Afghanistan at present, what they're doing, what their mission is, where they fit into a larger strategy, and then to determine whether or not their day-to-day duties could be done by a contractor or need to be done by a U.S. civil servant or a U.S. military person. Um, that's a lot of work. Um, and sometimes it's easier just to hand wave everything and push. Tr- That's not the preferred methodology from where I sit, but uh, I'm just a blogger, so who knows? <laughs> so I think we've sort of come to the end of the conversation, and um, per tradition, um, leave us with something to think about, to chew on, to cry about. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why it's just. It just seems like that's we, you know, it's, it's not we don't do terribly happy topics. So, 
you know, think about, to, you know, to analyze, leave us with something. Yeah, so I think, I think there are, um, you know, two things. Um, one is uh, take a look at the safe haven, safe haven idea. I, I challenge kind of everyone listening to do some research and come up with your own ideas of whether or not you agree with the safe haven um, idea and whether or not if you do, if it's applicable to, right now on October 1st at 8.34 p.m. Eastern Time in 2017, whether or not it's still applicable to Afghanistan. Um, that's the first thing. This, the second thing is, um, if uh, it, I always find it interesting, and I remind people of this, that the um, Afghan Taliban are still not on the State Department's list of designated terrorist organizations. So um, the idea that, yes, the Taliban provided a safe haven for al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda attacked the United States on 9-11, that's all true. But I, I would argue that the fact that the Taliban are not on the State Department terrorism, terrorism list is an indication that the U.S. government basically accepts that someday there's going to have to be a negotiated political settlement with the Taliban. Um, and then finally, what I will leave the listeners with is something that I, uh, that I thought about tonight, um, and I kind of did a little bit of a tweet storm on, which is um, if the U.S. goes to war tomorrow with North Korea, full all-out war, um, do you think we're going to leave... 15,000 troops in Afghanistan and 15,000 troops training for Afghanistan and another 15,000 troops on leave from returning from Afghanistan? Or do you think that probably anybody who has a pulse and a rifle is going to be sent to the Korean Peninsula? Because everything that has to do with, um, you know, national interests and foreign policy, everything's a trade-off. So, you know, the real question is... um, Kind of what tragedy does the United States want? Does the United States want to, you know, because they believe in the safe haven idea, um, really secure Afghanistan through the Afghan government? Or do we want to worry about um, a world that is made more in the, in the uh, mindset of Russia or China? Because all of this is a trade-off, and the U.S. really has to, you know, choose the world, choose the tragedy that, that it wants and kind of own its risk. Well, thank you so much, uh, Phil. Um, so that was Phil Walter. Um, he was discussing, um, his new article that he, on his blog, get the article name, um, Afghanistan Two neglected discussions. We'll have a link up for it. And then he is also the founder, and is that right? The founder of Divergent Options. Yes, divergentoptions.org. Yes. .org. So that's a that's whenever I want to engage in critical thinking and back and forth, that's where I go. So it's, it's you need to check both out. Uh, we'll have links to both. Thank you so much, Phil, and I will we'll see you next time. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much for having me on again, Cena. I appreciate it. Of course.